Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs in Greater Des Moines, Iowa, who share their stories of what worked and what failed on their entrepreneurial journey. This podcast is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell, Executive Director of Entrepreneurial Initiatives at The Partnership. Steve Sherlock, welcome to Startup Stories. You and your brothers were members of the very first class of the Global Insurance Accelerator. What was that experience like? Well, it's funny, you know, um, even though I'd heard of Iowa, I didn't really know where it was. We had to look on Google to see where it was. (laughs) (laughs) And then, because my brother's name is Des, when we saw arts in Des Des Moines, well, we were saying Des Moines, uh, we thought it was a sign. So that was a, a big incentive for us. But, you know, realistically, it was a really formative experience because we were effectively spinning off a business from, from an Australian company. And so then to be in a highly regulated insurance industry, we had so much support. Nick Gerhardt, which, who, who was uh, the commissioner for insurance, so that, that sort of caliber of people to help us navigate how we would become compliant as an insurance startup was um, invaluable. I can't tell you how many people I've told about our insurance commissioner, both of them, coming to the accelerator and helping people understand the law and even talking about, well, maybe we should change some things. Maybe we should open some things. Maybe we should do some things differently and actually wanting to hear that. It blows people away that there are government officials, and I think there's more than we give credit, that are like, sure, let's make it better. Well, and, and I think in, in Nick Gerhardt's case, I think he's a really curious guy. He is. And so I think that's a, you know, a great... I guess, asset for this state to, to have had, but also that uh, startups can really interact and, like you said, potentially influence some changes. Well, I think most of them know it needs to change. So for those who don't know your company, can you explain what Pablo does and what pain it solves? So I've probably had 20 versions of this and I've practiced uh, with people to see which one sort of works. But I guess just the the down-to-earth one is that we're at a, an insurance aggregator, and so we focus on the travel insurance space. So we effectively aggregate about six major insurance companies like AIG, Allianz, um, some others. So we connect to their APIs, so those big insurance companies, we, and we aggregate that feed into our own API, and then we provide access to distributors. So distributors are then able to access the products that we've already um, contracted, we've got that content, and and we've created an automated process for travel companies effectively to access those products. So to a layman's view, how would I see your product? If I'm going to Belize and I'm going to stay in a so many dollars per day kind of resort, all-inclusive, and I'm signing up on the website, do I, where do I, how does your product influence that? So you wouldn't know we're doing it. Okay. I mean, one aspect of our products, you would know. So you would be booking your vacation rental. So we, when you land on the confirmation page, um, let's say if you know it's a, a one-week property in, in Belize or wherever it, wherever it is. And it's expensive. And, yeah, and non-refundable. Right, it's non-refundable, of course. And so that's the, the key. That's why we work in the vacation rental market because they have really rest, uh, strict cancellation conditions and so we've created a a widget um, which is dynamic so on the confirmation page it reads what's just happened in that transaction and then creates a quote 
So it creates a live quote for a consumer and they're able to click the buy now button and then it will deep link them into the transaction page, which we also provide, but we allow the distributors to co-brand it. So it looks like a seamless process for the consumer, um, but ultimately we do the transaction and that's why we need it to be licensed because it's illegal for a distributor to do it unless they're, they're licensed. Sure. But for me, the consumer, I go on, I start to book the $6,000 trip because it's really expensive to do an all-inclusive place in a nice one in Belize. And at the end, it pops up as I'm doing the confirmation is, would you like to buy a travel insurance policy on this for, I don't know, four or 500 bucks, whatever it is. And it tells me why that's a great idea. And I can kind of click yes or no, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah, effectively. And, but we do it after the sale. So oftentimes you see like airlines doing it during the transaction. During the transaction, right. Um, but we do it after the sale because then we have all the information that we need to be able to create that quote. Okay. And we then do retargeting. So if someone doesn't buy at that point in time, right. you know, we have methods of, of retargeting, which gives us another and, and chance. Having, I, do, I do travel a bit, and having done some of these trips to places where it is non-refundable, it just is, because there's nobody there to take up your space. Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking to write that big a check and then fly into a potential hurricane season. Uh, so I get it. So so how has your business grown in the last three years? Yeah, so we, we arrived in February 2015, and that was during the winter. Yeah, welcome to Iowa winters. Yeah, that was one of those things. It was a great experience. But I wouldn't want to have to endure it because it was like, well, my language was minus 20. In your language, it was zero with wind chill. And so my brother and I, we, we walked outside and I said to him, I can feel the weight That's right. of the cold. And he said, yeah, it's trying to kill us. And so that was a, um, a real wake-up wake up call for us. Um, in 2015, March... Uh, it was when we incorporated Pablo here in in the US. And then two things we had to do. One was become licensed. So it took us a full year for that process to, to run its course. And you had to do all 50 states. Right. And I had to... That's 50 licenses for those who don't know the process. Well, it's 115, actually. 115 licenses. Great. <laughs> I thought it was only 50. Because it was me personally about... Um, over 50, right. but then the company oh, the has to. Well. So the, the company can't operate unless it's got an agent as its um, producer. And so so the li- company had to get licensed, I had to get licensed, and then we had to do it in property and casualty, accident and health, and um, travel and baggage. You know, Not all states requires all those things, but we had to get the licenses done that's what I call a barrier to entry in a new market. Yeah, I mean, so for us, it was. I realized this was worth investing in because mm-hmm. for other startups, um, their models are very different to ours because because we're an agent, we've got that flexibility. Right. We don't have to work with a particular right. insurance carrier. Um, and we can bring products to market theoretically more quickly um, because we don't have to uh, you know, rely on, um, you know, there's a lot of products off the shelf right. that we can can access that yeah. others wouldn't be able to access. So you, you incorporated in March. When was your first sale? Our first sale would have been around 
August 2016. So about 15 months later, 16 yeah. months later. So we also had a bit of a, uh, a snag in that one of the insurance companies that we had contracted a product with, um, we'd created the software, connected to their API, and then we had a client for it ready to roll it out. And they pulled the plug. They saw us as a competitor. <laughs> so You're reselling their product and you think you're a competitor? Yeah. We, we were reselling their product, but we were doing it as a post-sale. They were getting clients uh, where they have the checkbox in right. the reservation process. You were getting them afterwards. Yeah, and also smaller operators who right. normally wouldn't get a, a look-in with right. a big insurance company. So that is why it took then to August. That product has sold really well. Um, we've grown it reasonably well. We don't invest in it right now. It's growing organically. Really? What we found was, you know, going to these conferences and exhibiting, uh, really expensive. Yes, it is. And Especially global, because you have a global market. Yeah, and we, we were focused just on the, on the U.S. for those conferences, but, you know, really expensive. When I looked at how much we're spending on that and what our actual revenue was, uh, we were, it was a huge gap, and that would have sent us bankrupt, basically, if we'd kept. Yeah. Because we're sharing the revenue with those distributors. Oh, sure. And we needed to, to get them involved. We were, you know, giving them a good revenue share. Um, right. But it, if we have to market it doesn't really um, stack up. So we've sort of let that grow organically rather than spending on that. Um, and we then created a, a couple of other product lines where we do B2C, and there we get a, a much bigger margin. So why travel insurance? Why, When you came into the accelerator, why did you pick travel insurance? My background is in travel for the last, since 1997, actually. Um, so it's been a, a long time. I was a travel agent. Oh, okay. I lived in Germany for a while, and then when I came back to Australia, I wanted to make tours easier for German-speaking tourists. Sure. that makes sense. So I aggregated all the German-speaking tours um, throughout the country and put them onto a, a website. I mean, it was ahead of our time, really, because, <laughs> yeah. because the people that were our target audience were older Germans coming or German speakers coming to Australia. Right. A lot of them didn't have access to the internet really. Yeah, it was pretty early for internet access, especially yeah. for the older people. So one thing we got out of that was a car rental. So Germans love renting cars and driving sure. through the desert. And so we um we created our first uh, car rental and Germans would book that online. We had it in German and um that was really the the basis of my first major startup um, okay. in the Australian market. So is the travel market the still growing market? Yes. I mean, it's it's a $28 billion market. Wow. Um, and its annual growth is around 8%. And if you look at people coming into the tourism market, tourism arrivals um, in 2015 grew about 4.5%. And at that point, it was 1.2 billion arrivals. Wow. throughout the world so as more people can afford you know the um, people within China and India and as mm -hmm. people become wealthier I guess they're able to, to travel more yeah. and um, 
And also with the uncertainty in the world? With terrorism and yeah. some countries require travel insurance, for example. Sure. So the, the market overall is, is, um, is certainly growing. What do you think is wrong with travel insurance today? Well, two things. One is it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a 40-page legal document. That can be said of a lot of kind of insurance, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's just a, you know, a one-week, if you've got life insurance and that policy is going to follow you through your life, mm-hmm. that's different than buying a, an insurance policy for a week holiday in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one aspect. And the other is contentment because this barrier to entry that th- these travel companies have. That's, you know, it's very difficult for startups to replace their model. I think they're a bit lazy in that they don't. And I'll just give you one example. Um, we've got a, a distribution agreement with AIG, and they're really good to work with. But one example of their interaction with United Airlines. So they provide United the insurance that's offered during the uh, the airfare purchase process. And so when you're booking an airfare, you can have a, a non-refundable flight, right. and they're cheaper, the cheaper flights. When the insurance is offered for that, it makes sense because, well, if I cancel this flight, I could lose all my money. Yep. So, you know, I might as well take out the, um, the insurance. And let's say the price for that is $200. But then if you've got a fully refundable airfare, costs already, you know, at least double, um, maybe three times as much. And then when you see the insurance, it's, the insurance is also two and a half times more expensive. So now it's $500. However, the consumer doesn't need it because it's a refundable fare. That makes absolutely no sense. So it's just that, uh, you know, and I've blogged about that and I've diagrammed that just to get the industry to say, look. So let me get this straight. It's a higher price ticket with more options to get my money back. So you just naturally charge more for less value in insurance. That's pretty much what it gets down to. And it? I think that's a, it's a it's disrespectful to – and that's why people – travel insurance, I think, has this perception. Sure, because some of it's not a value at all. And so that's got to change, I think. So how many full-time staff are focused on Pablo these days? Before I tell you that, I'll just tell you my experience with a previous startup in the Australian market. Yeah. Their first round of funding was around $700,000. I'd never raised before, and mm-hmm. I hired a bunch of people, and – burning through money and mm-hmm. ended up having to get another round. And so what I sort of learned from that is don't let the money go to your head, for one. Yes. And don't raise it unless you really need it. And and if you can, have freelancers or people working part-time sure. where the commitment isn't going to cripple right. your business. So so that's the approach I've taken with, with Pablo here. So I'm the only full-time employee. Okay. Um, but I've got nine part-time slash freelancers. Okay. Um, and, you know, I've got three people in content. We've got two sites in the, the car rental insurance market, for example, and mm-hmm. we're just pumping out content for that. I've got three people in marketing and three in dev and design, but they're only working on projects that I give them. Th- yeah. um, so it's a really good way for us to not be overcommitted right. um, and, and really only pay for what we need at this point. Has that worked well for you? Yeah. We would have really needed to raise a proper seed round if we didn't use this approach. So have you been running pretty much on cash flow then? What we spend on marketing, I've used this as a, I think it's a good metric for, for me personally, is what, it, what we spend on, on marketing 
and on the marketing side of the uh, freelancers, we make back in revenue. Okay. So we basically break even on marketing spend versus actual commissions that we earn. But then there's my wages, there's uh, mm-hmm. insurance licensing, that, right. that's a, quite an expense, uh, servers and all that sort of stuff. So we're not, um, we probably need to double our revenue for us to be cash flow positive. Okay. But we're on, we're, the trajectory we have um, is encouraging and I think. So can you tell me some of the metrics on how the company's grown? Yes, to underpin everything is, is that, that licensing, which has enabled us to market directly to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think I mentioned that, but we've, so we've got that vacation rental product. Right. Uh, that's B to B to C, um, but we've got two brands in the, the car rental insurance space, which right. are B to C. So they're sort of a different metric because we're spending on marketing. And so a critical one for us is um, customer acquisition cost. Probably three months ago, it was around 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. per new customer and we've got it down to about 17% at uh, $17. Yeah. Um and that's because of the repeat user rate. Okay. So we've got about around 30% of the users are repeat users. Coming back. And so that's not costing we're not having to pay AdWords and right. all that sort of thing. Right. right. But we think the lifetime value is around $175. Yeah, so that's that's basically the metrics that I'm focused on on a monthly basis. So have you had a pivot significantly since you started? Well, I don't sort of use the word pivot because I think it's more an evolution. Yeah, because the original thought that you came in with, you're still doing. That's what's growing on its own, and you really didn't have to pivot away from that. Yeah, so our evolution or pivot, if you like, um, is in, in that on-demand transport insurance. So that's in, in the car rental space um, and we're working on something in the car share space mm-hmm. so you know sites like Turo and Get Around and Maven, um, Zipcar these type of right, right. to provide um, which is a very interesting space to work in. Yeah it's it's really app based. Did you raise funds after you left the GIA? Um, no we, we've received a, a small grant and a low cost loan from the Iowa government so that was really, really helpful for us. Um, but mostly, probably 80% we've funded ourselves. Okay. Uh, we've got a business in the Australian market, which is it's not huge, but it's quite profitable. And so we're able to invest okay. from those funds. Is that what Des is doing these days, is running that? Yeah. So he keeps that growing. Um, it's it's not, a, not a full-time job for him. He, he can you know, spend a few hours a day to keep that keep it going but we've we sort of look at that as our angel investor and and that's probably the main thing what i've learned is to have that independence that financial independence it's got to be nice to have but we don't um want to take it for granted but we want to get the, the business into a position where we feel when we where we feel that we're investable and sure. we think we can do that in the um, fourth quarter you know, it's funny. I remember when we started the insurance accelerator, there was no InsureTech. The, you know, the InsureTech name and buzzword hadn't come out yet. It was FinTech. FinTech was the big thing. Uh, and then InsureTech became a thing. Uh, when did you feel like you were part of something called InsureTech? Or did you ever feel that way? No, I still don't. Still don't? Okay. <laughs> I suppose in a way because what you're doing is, is pretty uh, to the edge, I would say, or to the not in the center focus of most of the InsureTech companies. Well, I mean... You know, I, I say we are in InsureTech, but... And you are. I, but to me, it's a little bit cliche because it's 
I guess you've got to identify an industry, and so you know we use catchy terms. Um, It'll help you when you raise money if you tell them you're an insure tech company because that's hot right now. Yeah, and I mean we, you know, I'm not talking to investors now for raising, but I am having conversations and, and getting advice, and I focus on those who have investments in the insure tech space. A lot of the development is around the edges, not necessarily changing the core of insurance, but more uh, bringing digital um, transactional methods and improving the... A lot of incremental. Yeah. How have you seen InsureTech evolve in the last couple of years? Um, yeah, kind of like what I said, that replacing manual processes. Yeah. You know, claims, for example, is a good example. Yeah, um, that amazes me. We're still fixing the claims process. Yeah. I mean, and- I, I, to this day, I'm still getting the... We're going to automate the claims process. It's like, why haven't we got that done yet? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. And it's complicated too because you've yeah. some of these policies are super complicated. They're not simple. And then to be able to match, you know, like for example, we're selling a policy where there is a pre-existing exclusion. So if you've got a pre-existing condition, mm-hmm. you're excluded. Right. But there's this clause further down which says, but if you buy this policy within 20 days of your initial trip deposit, mm-hmm. there's a, a waiver. <laughs> and so... The double negative. Yeah, not, most consumers don't know, can't work that out. Right. Um, so there's, a, you know, there's an opportunity for predictive analytics, yeah. you know, people call it AI, to, um, to really help with that process and also help the the agents who are doing the claims. Yeah. Um, I still think some claims are just going to be done like that because there's a narrow band of variant, uh, variants. Um, but whether it's where there's more complication, I think, um, you know, AI-type uh, solutions. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense because you're trying to weigh a lot of factors at once, which the human mind's really good at some things, but weighing a million factors or a hundred thousand factors or a thousand factors is not one of the things our minds are good at. So for those who have been around the insurance industry, it's not known for taking risk. How have insurance companies adapted to the new products and services, in some case competition from startups and fast growing companies? Well, I think one thing within larger insurance companies, because they've had such big balance sheets, you know, they've been uh, content in a way. And, you know, because that was big balance sheet, you know, we're sort of impenetrable. But now I think it's sort of gone to a point where um, if you're not innovating, you, you're like a sitting duck because all their competitors, that company who's not innovating um, in the insurance tech space, all their competitors are, right. it's sort of a, a wake-up call. Uh, for, for those in the industry. It reminds me of the car business about three or four years ago when it came from to electric cars and um, self-driving cars, you know, autonomous cars, because a lot of the car companies were kind of poo-pooing it. It's, yeah. I mean, I remember when Porsche said, you know, it's like, nah, it's not our thing. Now the, the new Tayman, I think is what they call it, four-door electric car, dead focused on uh, Tesla and launching next year here in the States, all in Europe, both. I mean, they're serious about it now. So they finally, it seems like they finally woke up. Yeah, I think that's a, it's probably a human trait is that you've got, you know, your early adopters. You do. And then um, the, the majority come along. And I think 
certainly the case in insurance industry. But to the insurance industry's credit, they are the biggest investors in insured debt companies. Yeah, and that makes me, I mean, it's good to see that, isn't it? Because the, the, car, the car industry did not was not one of the big investors in the early electric cars and stuff. They really pushed against it because it was, to them, they saw it as the, as the evil. Uh, and whereas the insure tech people, insurance people see it as when somebody gets this right, we got to have it. And it's a different way yeah. of looking at it. And the metric on that is 83% of all insure techs are getting their insurance, uh, their investment from either reinsurance companies or insurance companies. Yeah, no surprise there. What kind of core technologies are being adopted in insurance right now? So I'm thinking about things like bots and digital purchase. I mean, what, what do you see them really adopting in mass? Probably the bulk of it is digitization mm-hmm. still. Transactions, usability, UX and UI. Yeah. And then on top of that, uh, automation. So I think, you know, in the back end of, of automation yeah. and in the front end, and, you know, that's where natural language processing as well is yeah. is being applied sometimes it's you know a startup might come out with something a bot that gives them earned media <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. you know whether i'm not really convinced at this point that it's necessarily a big needle uh mover right as far as increasing the um, conversion rate of transactions mm-hmm. um it it may uh it may get there, but somehow I suspect um, consumers don't necessarily want to do the work of back and forth with the with the bot, as opposed to you know that system knowing more about me. Yeah, if I don't have to ask, it's a lot easier. I know. I mean, I use bots a lot. It's funny. I'm I'm not a fan of picking up the phone and calling somebody for support. I don't like sitting with like, waiting on the hold music. And sometimes I get people whose accent, nothing against them. I just can't understand their accent and, I, and we struggle. And so I do enjoy the bots and even the live chat ones as well. Um, and it's to me, it's it's how effective they are. Because if I can get my question answered, I'm happy. I mean, it's a brand positive. And, if, and in a way, if it doesn't, it's not a brand negative because it's a, it's a pain in the rear to have to solve a problem anyway. Yeah, and I guess um, just the the fact that it's like what we talked about earlier is having productizing something and having it in the market gives us more data. Sure, Um, sure. And if we can get really good at, you know, if it's an automated, an AI-type chatbot and really make it work for that use case um, and expand it rather than trying to do too many things at once um, where consumers might then lose trust in it. Yeah, you got to find it incremental. Where do you see blockchain fitting into insurance or does it even fit at all? Yeah, I think I think it fits. It, I think it has the potential really to be the underlying uh, protocol. And that's mostly because of security. So as a, an agent, I have to go through CE training, continued education. Mm-hmm. And so you have to sit through these webinars right um and if you're on another screen on your computer they can see that yes, so they can. you've got to really concentrate yes, they can. <laughs> so so i've i've actually learned stuff on there and we're talking about fraud <laughs> imagine that you actually learned stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing about this but it's true it's like i actually had to focus on it because they're watching me whether i leave or not so i actually got to learn something. yeah so it, it works um <laughs> and i and i think i can then apply some of those learnings so um, you know, fraud pre- prevention is is a big one. Yeah. Um, 
And it just, you know, as a, an example, if you've got an agent who might have, you know, really garner trust with a customer over years for life insurance, yeah. there's plenty of stories of changing the name on the life insurance policy. Yeah, there are. And so with, with blockchain, um, you know, that's, I wouldn't say impossible. No, no one's saying that language in, in that space, but it's... It's making it a lot harder. Yeah, to because if a, if a record, even just a comma, is changed within that policy, then the chain breaks, and that block, if you like, of data, then breaks from the chain, and so I think it's like a red light going on in the middle of the room and a siren going off. It's obvious something's wrong, and someone would have to have some massive computer power to then uh, reconnect that chain in the block wouldn't be worth reconnecting huh. what do you think are the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make i've been thinking about this recently and i think it's um a combination of aiming for utopia and then making excuses so if you look at nasa for example they only aimed for the moon yeah once they had already sent an astronaut into space and then re-entered. Mm-hmm. They weren't aiming for the moon where they, before they built a rocket. Right. And then look how much time's passed, you know, to then get the um, concept of then going to Mars. Yeah. So I think what happens with with startups is often they have this utopia goal that they're aiming for, um, but without necessarily having the credentials or the experience or the foundation. To get there, so, and that's why I think you've got such a huge failure rate. Um, you know, people say nine out of ten uh, companies fail, startups fail. Yeah, I th- I always find that fascinating because I know I think about how they measure that, and a lot of it's on legal filings. And I know the number of LLCs that are created every year; uh, it, it's just crazy. And then if you're rating failure, I don't know how they rate the failure, but if you're rating failure on they didn't renew four years later. Anybody can get an idea and go spend a couple hundred bucks at the state government and get the LLC. Is that a startup? I don't know. I look at it anyway as as startups found, and it's good uh, for everyone else that we're fodder. Yeah. Um, you know, ground troops, and the learnings that come from those business models that mm-hmm. didn't work or didn't work as planned. Yeah. Um, that's information for everyone else to to it benefit is. from. And the acquirers, you know, I was part of a company that grew to over a billion a year, and we wouldn't take a lot of risks on early stage startups ourselves. We'd wait to see if they figured it out, and then we'd just buy them. And people are like, well, why did you give $50 million for that? It's like, well, because I can turn it into $200 million of revenue in two years. What's the big deal? 50 is nothing. And yet, how many companies started out to build the one that made it to $50 million? A couple hundred? How much private equity went into all the companies that tried to go after that market and to get to the one that had the exit. And so it's one of the reasons these acquisition prices are high, seem high, but to the buyer, a lot of times they're not that high. Yeah, I guess because they can plug it into their existing infrastructure and then exponentially. That's how Cisco grew the networking yeah. business was they built a sales and marketing force globally and added products for acquisition. Yeah. Well, in the in the insurance, just an uh, addition there, that that's one thing insurance companies are doing. They're investing and also acquiring um, yeah. teams and technology. Yeah, and I think that is helping them because even if they just do an a- acquisition for hire model, 
they're bringing in some incredible talent in many cases that have been have been trying something pretty radical, and that pushes the rest of the organization. So what are you doing differently with this startup compared to the previous ones you've done? So probably going back to what I had originally done, which was generating revenue and bootstrapping, basically. So so in the in the company that we raised capital, we raised around a million and a half total in equity and then about 500,000 in um, government grants. And that business still runs. Um, The investors own it now. Um, We did everything wrong you could do. But I sort of had this, I didn't even realise I was a, you know, before that, I didn't, in previous, I didn't realise I was even an entrepreneur. Hmm. And then you had all these startup events coming on, raise funding, and that sort of thought, oh, okay, let's raise funding. Um, but didn't really know how we should go about it. So made all the mistakes you don't want to make, but they're really powerful lessons. They are. Um, and so I've taken, my brother and I, we've taken those lessons and then applied it. So that's why we we built a, a cash-generating business yeah. that we could do with our own funds, and we've grown that so that that can then fund our more ambitious right. venture yeah, so more of a steps growth model. Yeah. What do, what do you draw on? What meaning do you draw on to stay motivated? How do you keep yourself motivated? I get good sleep. Good sleep. Plenty of exercise. Um, but one thing I've, I've written on my, my Twitter profile is don't become an entrepreneur unless you're not going to be able to live without it. Yeah. You know, um, because it's really hard. And I, I enjoy things that are hard but fun because I get the fun out of Going through the difficulty and just persisting, getting through the difficulty and then having a result, and to me, that's just the buzz. Yeah. Um, and so as long as I'm getting that buzz, then this is not a job at all. It's just uh, enjoyable, yeah. and you know that's what keeps me motivated. Well, Steve Sherlock, thank you for being on Startup Stories. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by this startup story, visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.